Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sunderland defeated Barnsley 4-2 last night in what was a spectacular game of emotions for me. First 20 minutes, brilliant. The 70 minutes afterwards were difficult, tense to say the least. And today I am joined by Sunderland Executive Director Charlie Methvin and we're going to talk a little bit about the game last night, talk about what's happening behind the scenes at the football club and whatever else, wherever the, the wind takes us. So first things first, how are you, Charlie? Um, I think the phrase has been better. Hungover? Yeah. And whose fault's that? Tony Davison's. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Well, no, it's my fault because I've known him long enough to know that it's a very bad idea to go celebrating with Tony Davison. So that's not really his fault. Where'd you end up? I'm not sure. <laughs> Can't remember. It's better than the last time I went out celebrating with Stuart and ended up trying to steal a kebab off a Sunderland fan in a taxi queue. That was a real low. <laughs> Did they give you it? Yeah. Oh, that's good. At yeah. least you got it. Well, he did sort of offer it, but I shouldn't have taken it. It was pretty... Pretty humiliating moment in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, you saved the club with Stuart. He gives you a kebab. To me, that's a fair trade. Well, we haven't saved the club yet, have we? Well, saving. Saving <laughs> in the process. <laughs> Trying to. So, before we get started today, I just want to announce that we've got a new sponsor at Roger Report. Uh, and it's a sponsor that I'm very proud to have. Um, and it's the Beacon of Light. Um, it's a superb facility for our region. And I suppose it's a beacon, a true beacon of all good things in Sunderland, including sports, events, education. And I think you played there yesterday, Charlie. I did. How was it? Um, Stuart and I played in the same team for once. And even so, there was a moment at which he was really puzzling over whether to hat me down. He he (laughs) can't help himself. It was great fun. It was really good fun. It's the kind of thing that actually, um, without getting overly sort of emotional or sort of... um, waxing too lyrical it's the kind of thing which encapsulates what we're trying to do at Sunderland which is bringing all different bits of the Sunderland family together um so there was a um very competitive team of um of of people with mental challenges um but not physical challenges and pretty strong boys in there (laughs) um and uh then me and Stuart uh, and, and Oscar Chamberlain um from the club together with a few of the former players um ranging from Benno, who is still absolutely majestic. I mean, he he is he just glides through the game. Just everything looks so easy. And then Mickey Horswell in his 60s, I mean, tracking back 20 yards, making a challenge. And then at the end, when we're winning 5-2, saying, don't give them anything, don't give them anything. <laughs> With two minutes to go, literally yelling at Stuart and me not to slack, not to slack off and let a goal or two in. 
it was just absolutely great. Um, so as an afternoon for a football person, that was a pretty hard one to beat. Going to the Beacon, which I love, playing a, a competitive game, winning. Um, <laughs> going to the pub, having a few pints, and then going to watch what was, I think, you know, a really exciting game. There's no no way other round, no other way around to put it, was it? No, it was it was a hell of a game. Well, I mean, te- difficult. I would say it was difficult. For we were, we were warned when we hired Jack Ross by a couple of directors up in Scotland that he comes with a sign saying he is dangerous to directors' health because he he's an optimist, and if he's three one up, he wants to go four one up. He's, he's, he's like the opposite of Tony Pulis. Yeah. <laughs> he's a sort of non-game management manager who just thinks, I can win this game. And of course, what that does on the upside is it infuses the players. And you see the types of footballers who really want to play football. I think someone like Aidan McGeady would yeah. be a good example of this. You can see him just rediscovering his love for the game and really enjoying playing in front of people again. Whereas I think in the last year or two, probably... He just struggled a bit to really. Why am I doing this? Well, you yeah. know, didn't, didn't this used to be fun? And you can watch him now, thinking, "Well, this is fun." And Chris McGuire, I'm sure. He's um, the and same and as well. Chris absolutely would be the same. And and you see with with Luke and and George that they're all just really enjoying it. And I think so. Even if Stuart ends up totally bald and I end up almost <laughs> totally bald, and both of us end up um, silver foxes in our early middle age, uh, at least it'll be fun. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, so back to the beacon like we've teamed up uh, to give you £10 off your first five-a-side pitch booking so you can join Charlie as he was yesterday and play oh yeah we're there. ready for all comers now yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely a tournament. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got to do is you've got to call 0191 4818 and quote the code Rogue Report to get your £10 off and you and your mates can play there for just £3 per player um, so what's great about the Picnic Light though is the fact that all the profits from the venue go back in our local community and it's the great work of the Foundation Light as well so you'll be helping fellow Sunderland fans and people in your community by playing there so the code again is Roker Report and the number is 0191 563 it's the first time I've ever done an advertisement there we are um, so what are your plans for the rest of the day Charlie after you've finished with us in about probably four hours <laughs> um, find some Alka-Seltzer because that was a mistake, not bringing some of that along. And then we've got this evening our quarterly um, meeting with the Fans Collective, which is the formal coming together of all the fans groups with the people who are the administration of the club um, to discuss on an ongoing basis um, all the issues to do with off the pitch at the club. Um, And that's the the forum in which the democratically elected fans groups get um, the opportunity to question what we're doing to make suggestions as to how we can do things better um, and for us to get feedback on things we might do um, and run a few sort of initial ideas past what's a pretty educated, switched on group of people. Um, we've had one of these meetings on a large scale, another one, the, the first one on a smaller scale, but it's it's part of what the Football Supporters Federation have laid out as what we call best practice. And I think a lot of Sunderland fans will know that um, the deputy head of the FSF is a Sunderland fan mm-hmm. who is also the founder of the Red and White Army who attends these meetings. Um, and Dave and I are sort of working to try and make Sunderland the sort of the figurehead for 21st century, fully engaged with um, club, fully engaged with its fans um, uh, in its decision making. Um, and I think there's just a bit of an understanding gap to be bridged um, because it's a talking shop. Um, it's a talking shop which does lead to action. The naming of the South Stand came from that group. Um, 
And ultimately, in a way, the seat change, um, it was our idea, but that was run past that group and how could we do it and what would be the best way to do it, etc. So stuff does come out of it, but it is at the same time a talking shop. And I think there's a tendency to think that if something gets raised at the fans collective and they then print the, the minutes publicly, as they should do, that that means it's something we're definitely doing. And that happened, obviously, with the badge a month or two ago. It's like, oh, the club are going to change the badge. Well, no, it's a discussion. It's a discussion. Um, and what it is, it's me as the sort of the guy on the board who's in charge of this kind of stuff, testing every little bit of the club and saying, is it absolutely as good as it could be? Um, and it, that feeds into, uh, across a whole range of different issues, I'll speak to the, the fans' leaders and say, is this great? Is this really, really great? If it's not great, let's start the conversation about how it could be better, greater. Because if we get all of these things absolutely spot on across every different area, I think the club will feel pretty special. So they're basically f- helping you fine-tune sort of the the way the club almost represents itself. Yep, um, how it represents itself, but also the actual concrete decision-making process um, on stuff which isn't just about PR, but is actually material. You know, big issues like safe standing, um, drinking in stands at football games, these big sort of national issues where we have to decide as a club where do we where do we sit on these issues. And rather than in the old-fashioned way, the board just saying, well, this is what we think and you fans like it or lump it, this is a mechanism to make sure that by the time the club puts its best foot forward, we do so as one. Um, with the fans and the administration of the club both speaking effectively with one voice. And even if it means that sometimes <clears throat> some people have had a different view but the view has been heard, um, and it's just the, all, the, the the opposing point of view has been heard more loudly um, for a for a vote or whatever it might be. So we're trying to sort of make things as democratic as possible. There are some issues where you know I, I don't think which I don't think respond well to that sort of thing where they, where the board does have to make a decision. But you know, um, on a lot of these things, what you want is a broad consensus behind it. Okay, I'm going to jump to talk, and we have talked a little bit about the game, but I want to talk about the game a bit more, just because yeah. it was such a good game. So, um, what did you make of it from the director's box? From you know the first 20 minutes compared to the last 70 minutes, how, how was it for you up there? I sort of divided the game into into th- looking back. This isn't, isn't what I was doing at the time, but I sort of divided the game into three looking back. First half an hour, um, I've probably watched uh, plenty of seasons of third tier football probably well, not probably definitely a lot more than most Sunderland fans and I'd say that half hour that's as good as a league one side is going to play um, I thought we were absolutely brilliant at the way we moved the ball so quickly and a really decent Barnsley team who's fundamentally exactly the same Barnsley team as the Barnsley team that only just got relegated from the championship last year so it gives you a quite a good benchmark they're basically a low end championship side and they've added Kiefer Moore who's a really good striker to that so you look at it and think, okay, that's the benchmark. They're powerful, they're strong, they're young, and they were already decent last year. And for half an hour, I th- thought we just passed them off the park. And the speed, the speed was just absolutely mesmerising at times, how quickly the ball was being moved around, like the players just knew where each other were going to be. And players who, again, I go back to what I was saying earlier on, who perhaps had lost a bit of their zest for the game, watching them start to express themselves as footballers, Adam Matthews. Brilliant, wasn't he? Absolutely. Cafu-esque. Electric, wasn't he? 
Just yeah. he's just like a Rolls Royce, just cruising out of defence, dropping he, a shoulder. He knocked the ball past the their well, would have been their yeah. left back, and he just like well, beat him for pace. I was he, like, Adam Matthews, who knew? Jack Ross knew, funny enough, when he came to the club, he said, "Oh, he's a real player. He is," because he remembers him from when he was at Celtic. Yeah. So I think gradually there's just an uncovering of a lot of natural ability that had been somewhat squashed by the um, uh, just the sheer crappiness of the last couple of years. Good footballers who'd just been ground down. Um, who are just together rediscovering their love for the game. And when you pop into training like I do, whenever I'm up here just to have a look, you just see that they're just having great fun. It looks like the job that all of us would have loved to have been able to do. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, so so that was the first third of the game. Um, there was a, a, a critical moment when Josh missed a very good chance to go 4-0, um, which is then game over and probably damage limitation from Barnsley at that point um, and then they, they, they get back into it and at that point you just know that, that, that at half time they're, they're thinking they you know the what post as well yeah if yeah they did yeah at half time they're also thinking if we if we get the next goal we're banging this game and that then puts them on a real front foot momentum when they come out so we had to scrap battle really show that we weren't afraid to get our hands dirty I thought you know as a punter which is all I am I'm not a professional person this this was a new slightly new situation for us to manage, being well ahead against a good team. We've been well ahead against some of the weaker teams, but to be well ahead against a good team who've got the capabilities to come back and mentally be able to tell yourself it's still nil nil, it's still nil nil with a better team. We now need to go on and carry on being the better team. That's a sort of trait. That's one of those traits that teams gradually learn, isn't it? It's rather like how the team dug themselves out um, on Saturday against Walsall. That was a trait that they've been learning for a bit. That that was the result of several games where they've come back from a goal down or from being down to ten men, and then down to ten men and two down. Right, it's okay. We know this situation. We've been there before. We understand what we have to do. And I think perhaps next time that they go three nil up against a decent side, they'll go okay. I remember last time we slightly lost the plot in terms of our composure. Perhaps, perhaps we'll be able to just keep our keep our heads on a little bit better but a little bit better next time but Barnsley are a good team they're always going to have a, a, a spell in the game and they had it for 20 minutes um, and then I thought the last 10 to 15 minutes we had three or four really good chances um, and they'd sort of run out of steam really yeah they tired themselves out chasing the, the second goal really yeah. it was lucky that I know we conceded on 60 minutes but that was better than conceding earlier because they worked really yeah. hard for 15 minutes yeah um, and we didn't really give them a sniff after they got the second goal. I can't recall any hairy moments. I don't think they created a lot in open play in the whole game, actually. Yeah, it was Kiva Moore. What a but, head. Um, <laughs> but uh, off off corners, they looked threatening, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Gucci and, and Madja both scored brilliant goals last night. I don't know. Which was your pick? There was also Luke Nines, which is a brilliant team goal. But which was your favourite? Well, Madja's. Yeah, the, the uh, turn inside. I, I just thought that seamless, smooth turn... Just a little bit of acceleration and bury it with one, one touch. You know, it was just it was majestic, wasn't it? No, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And then to be fair, the the fourth goal, the way that was played, the fact Honeyman didn't play all nine in straight away, he played it across, and then mm. Aidan McGeady has the sense to put it across goal was just superb, brilliant. And you could see that, you know, that was sort of confidence. You know, they didn't overthink it; they just yep. did what was natural. Played what they saw in front of them. Yeah, it was good fun, wasn't it? Those. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't at the Warsaw game. I was seeing my daughter, who's at school in France this term, and uh, Stu said that it was just absolutely fantastic, and that he was in the stands. 
Um, he said it was absolutely fantastic. And I, last night, I just as a football experience that took you through all the emotions, yeah. <laughs> elation, anxiety, sudden gulps of, oh God, we're not going to throw away a 3-0 lead at home, are we? <laughs> and then into, ah, oh, it's going to be okay, isn't it? And then elation again. It was just uh, cliche, of course, the roller coaster, wasn't it? It was. Uh, speaking of Gucci and Madja, there's obviously a contractual situation happening there, and I thought would uh, pester you for an update. So, is there, is there any update with them too? It's not that. That's not an update for me to give. Yeah. Um, it's not my area of the club, um, and uh, I I know the board knows that very good offers have been made to all of our young players to stay, um, and. Those offers are, in most cases, obviously not in Bali's case, but in in most cases, those offers are awaiting a response. And that's where it sits. And as soon as the response has come in, then we all know about it and the fans will know about it very shortly Yeah. um, after that. But really, there's nothing else to say. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about you. You as a person, we know a lot about Charlie Methvin, the the businessman, the Sutherland director, but we don't really know much about Charlie Methvin, the the person. So not much to say. Yeah, well, I've got a few questions. Oh God. Okay, so firstly, it's an easy one. What's your what's a normal week like for Charlie Methvin? <sighs> um, it's a bit weird at the moment for Stuart and me, but particularly me because he lives in Oxfordshire and his business is in Oxfordshire. I live in Oxfordshire, but my business is in London. So I'm basically doing a triangle. Um, I might have Sunday, a Sunday in Oxfordshire, go up to London on Monday, be in London Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, doing my day job, which is public relations consultancy. And then coming up to Sunderland on a Wednesday night, spending three days in Sunderland, going up to a Saturday home game, then coming back down to Oxford on the Sunday, maybe taking a day working from home on the Monday to sort myself out and do a bit of admin and then going back into London maybe for three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday maybe. So it's just a constant um, shuffling between three places. It's not very efficient, um, but there's not much I can do about it. So how do you relax on that one day a week on the Sunday? How do you relax? What does Charlie do when he needs? There's no football on. You've just got to relax. What do you do? Just have a really nice bath and listen to the Rogue Report podcast. Good, good answer. That was a strong <laughs> answer. Uh, I've also had a question about uh, the red socks. You wear red socks on a match day. Are they lucky socks? Um, well, yes. But then I was wearing red trousers last night, and you can't wear red socks with red trousers. Otherwise, you look, you look like a clown, or as Stuart would say, <laughs> even more like a clown. Um, <laughs> so last night, I was wearing blue socks and did all right. So it could be blue. Blue on Saturday. Um, no, it'd be red on Saturday. Yeah. No, you think about it that far in advance. I don't know what's <laughs> happening with the socks. No, it's just I'm, I'm, you know, these red, these red trousers I'm wearing them so that I think they could do with a trip to the trip to the cleaners. So I'll, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be in some sort of sober suit on Saturday. Um, uh, favorite pint? I I like a lot of the Czech pilsners and um, and German lagers. To be honest with you, um, in terms of the generic stuff, I quite like Carlsberg. Um, I'm not as anti as some people in Sunderland have noticed. I'm not as anti cause Light as some people seem to be, I quite like it. I like Coors Light. Yeah, I like it. And my other half's from Colorado, so sort of she encourages that. Yeah, yeah, because that's what it's all based, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Does she watch the Colorado sports teams? Or do you watch the Colorado sports teams? Yeah, actually? a bit. Um, she, Helen, was um, a top-class uh, international basketball player nice. and, and played um, Division One basketball in the States, which is the top level of college um, sport, and then came back to Germany to play for Germany. Um, so she... 
did a lot of training at the University of Colorado, um, which is one of the big American football schools, um, and knew people in in football who went into the NFL, etc. So I've gradually been getting into American football. It's not a patch on our football, no, let's be honest. Not. But it has its moments. Just the breaks in play are it's really... It's nice in a 10-minute highlight package. Yes, maybe. exactly. The breaks in play are infuriating. And the other thing is, which I don't understand, is part of the fun of sport is watching people have to do things that aren't quite their thing. You know, yeah. you know, Aidan McGeady is a wonderful footballer, but last night he was having to trap back. And you can, you're seeing a player who, for whom that doesn't come naturally. But, yeah. but in, in football, you have to do everything. You have to go back for the corner. You have to mark your man, etc. In American football, it's like, well, you only have to do your thing. The moment you've done your thing, we're not going to make an attacking player have to try and defend. We're just going to bring on a whole new team of people mm-hmm. who are defensive people. And imagine what football would be like if that were the case. Yeah. You know, we'd start off with all our attackers on the pitch, give them a go, and then say, okay, now we're going to put all our defenders on. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird, isn't it, when you think about it? Why would you do that? Why not just have one team? Yeah, no, it is. Have to pay so many more players as well. I mean, I know I'm speaking like a, a sports club director here. But, <laughs> I mean, imagine. Imagine having to pay two full squads of attacking and defensive players. Well, maybe that's what you should get involved in next. Once you're finished with something, take over the, I don't know, the Denver... Broncos. Know, Broncos, there we are. I think the Denver Nuggets are the basketball team. Yeah. Uh, what's your favourite film? Oh, I... I couldn't give it a, a, a succinct answer. What's your favourite genre? Genre? Um, Do you like a rom-com? S- sort of. Um, if I'm made to watch it, I, I, tend to, <laughs> I tend to end up enjoying them more than I think I will. I'm the same. Yeah. But I wouldn't go out and sort of, you know, deliberately make a trip to the cinema to see it. Jennifer Aniston's a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, <laughs> what's happened to Jennifer Aniston? Oh, I've got no idea. She well, just seems to appear in the odd film, doesn't she? She's she does. 50 year old now. Yeah. And despite being on the front cover of Grazia magazine every year for four years, then wondering who she was going to get married to on, did she ever get married? No idea. No. I don't think she had any kids. I'm pretty sure. This is no. this has changed. This conversation's taking a turn. Not expect we talk about Jennifer Aniston. So, what was the favorite genre anyway? I quite like a western. Oh, a western, nice. Yeah. Favorite holiday destination? Argentina. Was not why Argentina? I'm partially Argentine. Makes sense. And it's a great country. Um, Although, if my mate Juan becomes president of Uruguay, I might frequent there a bit more. They've got a fantastic coastline there. He's made a slightly <laughs> unwise promise, which I'm I'm wondering if any of the players have remembered. When we were at the tra- pre-season training camp in Portugal, he told them all that if we got promoted, he'd take them all to Uruguay. I'm betting that the majority of the players have forgotten, but Chris Maguire definitely hasn't, because he'd never forget that. Yeah, it's a free holiday at Uruguay. Why yeah. not? Favourite type of music? <laughs> well, um, are we going to get on to the music topic? I mean, there will probably be a bit of yeah, music. Um, indie, nineties um, indie, nice, um, and probably some soft metal. Um, I, I quite like those big eighties cheesy anthems. So Spice Girls wasn't your choice. Well, delighted to get them. Yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm, Stu's gone and bought something like. Oh, I have 80 tickets or something like that and I'm like mm. he told me that I would like to go see them I was like Stuart I'm not being funny but Spice Girls is probably not my thing I was like what's your thing not Spice Girls I don't know uh, uh, what would be my favourite type of music do you know what? I, I would take too long to answer that question to people want to hear what your favourite music I've is I've actually got um, very similar taste in music to the manager and I've worked out this because he's three days older than me oh, we're, we're almost exactly the same age and you know it, it, we both like indie bands of the kind that Martin McFadden tours. 
<laughs> um, and then the prodigy and that type of stuff as well. Um, Swedish house mafia. Um, oh, I like Swedish house mafia. Yeah, Big well, we, that, in, until briefly, Tiesto's been on as well. Let's 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 not go there. Let's yeah. not let's not rub salt into the Donald wounds. <laughs> <laughs> who's your favourite footballer? Non Sunderland footballer. Um, who's who's playing at the moment? Yeah. Okay. Who do you like watching the most? Uh when he's playing in the correct position, he should be playing in Gerdo Kante. Nice. He's a brilliant defensive midfielder. Better than McAleary. Who'd have thought that was possible? Yeah. What's the best thing about being involved in Sutherland AFC? It's totally mental and it takes us back in some ways to feeling like we're 16 again. What's the worst thing? Travelling. And what is your best moment watching football? As a fan? I think if I just answer it in two parts. First of all, as a, as a kid... So in the, in you know, you, you see things a bit differently. Um, when I was quite young, um, Oxford United were a very good team, um, but I was too young to really appreciate that. So what I went trophy in eighty six. Eighty six. I went to the Milk Cup final in eighty six. The year after, Sunderland got beat by Norwich. Um, Oxford beat QPR three nil, and I was like eleven or yeah ten. Um, and I remember I remember all the adults being really happy. I'd only ever really seen success, so I didn't really get what it meant for a medium-sized club to win a major trophy. Um, but we then went through a bit of a, a sort of... After Rob, Robert Maxwell got pushed off his boat, we went bust a few times because he'd mortgaged the club, the players, everything. Um, and then Dennis Smith arrived with Malcolm Crosby and turned it round on no money, but created a really strong team. Um, and that was when I was about 17, 18 and that was the perfect time to really have a team who you could buy into. you know. And there was a, a player who played um, for us, a lo- local winger, who became a bit of a sort of football connoisseur's legend because of a, a big money move to West Ham he made that, um, didn't, that he then said he was homesick and couldn't go through with it. Um, but a guy called Jerry Beecham, who was a lightning quick winger, who was, you know, he was the England youth winger, left winger at a time when England didn't have a left winger. But he decided he didn't want to play for Oxford. Um, and played the rest of his career for Oxford, scored 20, 25 goals a season in the championship. He was absolutely electric. And he was two or three years older than me. I knew him, I knew his family, um, still do. And that was a great team for me to watch. So I really enjoyed that period. And there was a um, promotion um, game, promotion goal, scored by David Rush. And I just remember that day being, you know, absolutely everything that I could want a football day to be. Um, And then in, in more recent times, Again, the club had been through several successive administrations and bankruptcies, and I got, like Stuart, got involved in the club, but we were really struggling and trying to get the whole thing back together again. And the club was in the in the conference, and they they won the playoff final at Wembley, and that was the first time since I was a kid that I'd sort of cried at a football game because it, it meant that much. Yeah. We had to get back in the league. Our cost base was too big to be in the conference, um, and rather like here, you can only squeeze. A, a proper football club you can only squeeze the cost base down so far because there's just stuff that you have to you have to pay for um so those two games are the most memorable for me watching oxford and hopefully obviously that will be supplanted by really memorable sunderland games yeah. of which of which there have been quite a few this season there's, there's been a lot already hopefully we'll <laughs> it's the... a bit epic isn't it yeah it is hopefully we'll win the checker trade this year oh that'd be that'd great be that'd be really good you probably have about 60,000 Sunderland fans there for play someone small if we're allowed the allocation yeah that'd be amazing right I want to talk a little bit about your role so what exactly is your role at Sunderland <sighs> I'm not sure that it could be described exactly because it's not really the way in which Stuart works 
if you think in terms of, and I think there are strengths to being a very corporate person, um, structure and so-called professionalism and all this type of stuff. Um, but Stuart's not that. Stuart is an entrepreneur and quite freewheeling and he likes to move quick and he likes to be surrounded by people who add value wherever there is value to be added. And he reserves the right to say at any point, oh, no, we're not doing that. And I own the thing. So so you can't really say, I can't say, here's the area. This is what it is. Stuart's allocated it to me. And that's all I do. Because actually, you end up doing stuff that isn't really in your area because you, he, he and I think that's a place where we can add value. And there'll be areas that actually are in my area where Stuart will say, actually, I'm, I'm going to do that. And that's fair enough. This is very fluid. It's very fluid. I remember... <laughs> The job title executive director was made up on the spot in our first press conference because I was suddenly asked by some national newspaper journalist, um, so what you, I was like, uh, uh, my thought process went, well, I'm a director, that I am. <laughs> um, I'm not a non-executive director, so I'm an executive director. <laughs> that's how it happened. And that's your title. That's it. <laughs> how often do you speak with Stuart and Juan and, and do you have a, a WhatsApp group chat? N- no. Um, Stuart and I probably speak... Uh, it slightly depends. If there's a major issue on, we'll speak several times a day. Um, if if it's a quiet week and we'll be, we're both busy in our businesses, maybe speak three or four times a week, something like that. Juan um, is a separately a client of mine, so I I, I have business interests that sort of with Juan, so I have other things to discuss with him. Um, on football, uh, it all depends how busy he is. Um, I mean, he is at the moment. So I think he's well known, very very busy. Um, potentially running to be president of Uruguay. But he sent this hilarious WhatsApp or text last night, a picture of him um, wearing his Sunderland shirt and a bobble hat in Uruguay, I presume, with his little <laughs> baby son dressed up in Sunderland gear as well, watching the stream. Um, so, yeah, I'd probably speak to Juan on average once a week. Um, speak to Stuart, obviously, quite a bit more than that. Yeah, I was hoping you had a group chat. I like the idea of you having a, a group chat and sending inappropriate things around to each other, like what happens in our rope report one. <laughs> um, I want to take you back to the day you came here back in May. I think it was the 21st of May. The first day you, you had the club, you had your press conference, and then you came here. So what were your feelings that day, and how happy are you with the progress you've made in six months? Feelings that day were of relief that we were finally in, um, because it's quite a torturous process and we had to do it at breakneck speed, relatively speaking. But we knew that every week that went by, what date did you say it was? 21st. 21st of May. We knew that if we got into June and we hadn't been able to sign a manager and therefore we didn't have somebody in place to speak to the players and some of the better players would start drifting away because they wouldn't know who the manager was and we just knew that we were under the gun a little bit. So it was a real relief when we finally ironed out the remaining issues of Ellis pretty much that morning, I think. That's a good example of Stuart at work. He's like, well, we're done, I think. So let's do the press conference now. And suddenly the Sunderland press office that's been used to dealing in more Martin Bain style, sort of very careful, measured, things done over a period of time, etc. get used to the whirlwind that Stuart Donald is saying, um, yeah, doing the press conference now. And I was down south, so I had to get in my car. And I'm like, hot-footed up here, and I got here about 15 minutes before. The, it, was, it was a hot day, I think. I think it was... Uh, oh, I can't remember what the weather was like. I think it was a, a Monday. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a Monday. a Monday. It was a Monday. Because he rang me. No, he texted me. He texted me at like seven o'clock in the morning, being like, "You will do the podcast today." And I was like, "Really? Mm. You've not even like officially taken over yet?" I was like, "It'll be done. You just..." And that encapsulates Stuart Donald's style. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, things do happen, um, and you have to get used to the pace at which they happen. But they do happen. He is a doer. He doesn't just say it. I think the seat change thing was absolute classic. Do you remember he was in here and was like, well, "What about the pink seats?" And Stuart something. Well, I think. Um, did you just yeah. make that up on the spot? Not make it up. Maybe not make it up is the right word, but pretty much. Yeah. Like, had you talked about that? I can't remember. But I, I remember thinking at the time and looking at your face and thinking, they, they think we're nutters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and immediately everyone at the club's, oh no, health and safety, this. And, and Stuart's like, no, come on. We'll, where there's a will, there's a way. Let's do yeah. it. Let's do it. He thought we could do it in a weekend as well. Oh, I know. Do you remember it was a barbecue in a weekend? Yeah. <laughs> but that's a brilliant idea. Then, of course, the more operational people have to come in and say, this is actually the structure around doing yeah. it. And I think it, it was an absolute stroke of genius. It was. Good PR. <laughs> I think a bit more than PR. I think it was um, an, an, a tangible way of enabling people to be involved with their club. Yeah. Rather than us just saying it, actually having a concrete action for people to do it for the next, however long it is, 10 years, be able to say, see that row up there? Yeah. That was me. Although I'm, I'm told that your DIY skills are not such that you'd be able to say that was a row. Yeah, I was going to say, my, I'm surprised that the people in the southeast corner have not fallen through their seat yet because it was me who did them seats. They don't really sit there, do they? Well, sit, no. no <laughs> that's the family bit, that, I think that, I did. Well, really? It could be an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, it could be. But you, you didn't change any. You've got worse DIY than no, me. No, I'm, so. I'm absolutely useless at DIY. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the same. Why? You can pay somebody else to do it, so why would I do it? I'll just do it wrong. No, I don't pay someone. Just get people to do it for free. Oh, fair enough. Well, I don't have that power. <laughs> um, you've recently worked with Daniel Levy and Spurs. Well, I'll be put, put, pushing in a bit, say, what with Daniel Levy and Spurs. Um, I was a consultant to Spurs. What were you, well, are you allowed to tell what you were consulting about? Yeah, actually, funny enough, I mean, it was it was actually on helping Tony, really. Um, helping Tony fill, fill the um, the new stadium, um, which was his his role. Um, you the, did a good job. It's not open. <laughs> well, he's doing a great job. He sold it out, and then he left just before it became clear it wasn't going to open. Yeah. <laughs> and I teased him the other day, saying, "Just imagine all the hideously awkward conversations you'd have had in the last five months if you'd stayed there." Yeah, it would like, have been. And he's like, "Yeah, I know. It'd it have been horrendous. been horrendous." I think next time I see him, I'm going to take the mega for that. Actually, um, so what were you actually doing there then? So what was it? Um, basically, helping them. I mean, it's, it's so what what they done the new stadium is they White Hart Lane. They had one and a half thousand expensive tickets what they call premium seats and then in the new stadium that's moved to i think eight and a half thousand one of the, one of the biggest in the world so they had to fill eight and a half thousand expensive seats so we were helping them define what that proposition was to the london market mm. and then find those people yeah um it'd be, it'd those, difficult. those companies those people etc it was really interesting um it was the first time actually i've really worked in specifically in um hospitality something that Tony knows, knows a lot about. Um, and it, it taught me a lot in terms of what we need to do here. And this is sort of on, on the long list of issues that we have to address and turn around. The um, the premium uh, the premium tickets are, are one of them because they've dropped off massively over the years. I think the club was very lazy in this, as in many other things, actually. in When we were in the Premier League, it's like, well, it's Premier League football. That's where they're coming. So why think about... Yeah, everything else. Everything else, you know, and they'll they'll come, they'll pay, they'll pay us some money, and we'll give them some food, and it'll all be fine. But actually, the way in which um, the high end punters um, want 
to consume that product is changing really fast. And I think the old sort of traditional jacket and tie silver service box type setup is becoming less and less fashionable. And people want a more open, relaxed, um, flexible environment where maybe one week they might have two or three people and the next week they might have 10 or 15 people because the problem about box is filling it every single game. It almost becomes a bit of a chore. Yeah. You know, I've paved the box and you end up, you know, inviting people who probably you wouldn't normally bother with, but you've got the box, why not? Now, we've got lots of boxes, Sunderland, so we do have to fill them, absolutely. We've also got some other great spaces that we need to approach in a more flexible way. And I was having meetings at the club yesterday with Tony and Mark Mosley to um, uh, to start looking at that. And I think that's where, we, where we've got... Uh, sorry, my, my hangover is sort of, mean, sort of slightly woolly-headed here. I think you asked earlier on how far... How do you think it's gone? Yeah. Yeah? That, that was... The second part of that question. Um, we've got to the point now where we're, we're able to start addressing some of these more medium-term type um, issues because... The immediate urgent ones have mostly been either addressed or parked for another day because we can't address them right now. Do you feel like when you're up here, you're in a goldfish bowl? I think Stuart said that he finds being up here very taxing because people want his time. Are you the same? Yeah. Really? Is it? I suppose it must be. You're like a. You've turned into a celebrity, I suppose. It's really weird for two obscure people from Oxfordshire in their early middle age who. And we've both done quite well in our careers, but we've never gone into the types of jobs. I guess when I was a journalist, maybe, and I became a columnist, you, you're reasonably well-known because your face was in the paper on a regular basis. But generally speaking, in the big scheme of things, you're pretty obscure. You know, if you go and become a footballer or you go into, um, you know, music, part of the deal is if I'm going to be successful, I'm going to become famous. When you go into insurance or public relations, you don't do so on the basis that you want to become famous. You pretty much know that you're never going to be famous Mm -hmm. and maybe even part of the reason why you chose those choose those avenues is because actually that's not particularly what lights your fire and i don't think it is particularly what lights either Stuart or my fire so it's been really weird to in a certain part of the world become recognized yeah recognizable um and people say do you like it i said well it's not as simple as that i like the fact that the people i bump into are so engaged with their club because that's what gives us the power to do something with it. Um, and I like the fact that people up here are so friendly and you get to know people and it's a totally new part of the world and it's fun and it's in, it's really engaging and Stuart and I are sociable. So we're not... Um, we like it, but it is intense and we tend to retire to Oxfordshire needing a, a bit of a lie down. Yeah. Is it more int- like? Did you expect it to be like this? Did you expect this? That? Is, this is the big difference, I think. And until somebody's experienced the northeast football scene, um, I don't think, I don't think you can get it. Into, you're told about it. You're warned about it. Yeah. Until you've experienced it, until you're in the middle of it, I don't think you understand it. Yeah. We didn't anyway. Because if you'd been at say Oxford, would you have been sort of threatened the same way? Do you think? No. 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 Not no. I mean, the the, the owner of Oxford United. Um, he happens at the moment to be a rather recognisable man who's a tie, who wears a bow tie. So perhaps he would be a bit recognised because it's a bit of an oddity. But in general terms, if you're the owner of Ox United, you could walk several times around that city and no one would know who the hell you were. Yeah. Or, or care, really. Yeah. Um, I think it's not just Oxford, though, which is a medium-sized club. Even some quite large clubs and even some quite large northern clubs, I'm not sure, really, that the 
that the intensity is the same. Yeah. I don't think so. Not really. The northeast is particular. Have you ever bumped into any mags? Have they been friendly? Because you, you, you annoyed some mags, didn't you, a few months ago? There were a couple of Newcastle supporters who were in my college at university, and quite a few of us used to tease them. They were going through their Keegan bit, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they had the wind in their sails. Football started in 92 and all that. Yeah, because this is 93, 94, so it was right in that sort of, you know, Espria yeah. sort of bit. And um, maybe Ginola, was he there by then, 94, 95? Oh, asking me. I'm not a mag. <laughs> um, and uh, so we used to sort of tease them a bit, and they were sensitive to teasing, which, of course, me- means you do it more. So I don't know. I, I don't know if you know Connor, but for a while I was a gossip columnist or diarist, they call it. Which and part of the the, the sort of metier of being a gossip columnist is to um, just tease people or prick people's balloons a little bit from time to time, just to sort of create upset the apple cart, whatever yeah. it might be. And there's a mischievous bit of me that knows that they're quite easy to wind up, and that being the owner of Sunderland puts you in a position where it's quite easy to get that reaction from them and it's really naughty and Tony tells me not to do it <laughs> um, but just from time to time Stuart and I can't help it because they do get onto you in such a way that you're getting such a you're getting such bang for your buck you only have to just throw a little line out there and it comes back with just carp biting all over the place and it's just quite fun <laughs> yeah we, we, we shouldn't take it too far but it is a, it is it is a bit of fun and i know that the, the rivalry is very serious i know the rivalry is very intense we haven't been to a derby yet so we don't know what that's like but we know the rivalry is very intense and we know that it's not always actually fun that it actually can be quite serious and, and so we're not belittling it but we do think that football is meant to be quite fun yeah in general oh, i say tease them away tease them um, all you want and you know what they'll they'll tease us back um, but if it can be on that level, then it's it's not bad, is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I doubt you'll have much teasing with Mike Ashley. So. No, and I haven't teased Mike Ashley either. I no. don't think. Have Do I? you know Mike Ashley? No. No. Okay. Uh, some championship clubs have been talking about leaving the EFL, kind of setting up a Premier League two. I think is the idea. Uh, what's your view on that? Would Sunderland be interested in leaving the EFL structure if that ever came up? I haven't discussed it with Stuart. Um, so I hesitate to speak on behalf of Sunderland. Um, your, your but if I can speak on on my, on my own, yeah. um, I think it's a crap idea. And what about the European Super League? I can see why they'd want to do it. Do you think it's for leverage? I don't think they would do it. Could Liverpool function without Everton, Tottenham without Arsenal? Um, I think they'd be. I, I can understand why, in the short term, certain corporate style chief executives put together a spreadsheet and think this might be a good idea in terms of anyone who cares about the culture and the history of the game, it's an absolute abomination. And the current structure of our league is absolutely fantastic when you think about it compared to other countries. We're in a situation where 20 years ago, Manchester City were in our position, and they're now probably the strongest club side in the world right now. You've got a situation where teams who 20, 30 years ago were ever-present in the top division, but who are in obscurity now, like Coventry, um, you've got... Team, like Leicester? team at Leicester who can go and win the top division and I think the way in which the Premier League's finances are structured means that I I think that is possible now because you've got you've got mid-ranking teams who have got the budgets to be able to afford to compete for top level players against Juventus and um, the big Spanish clubs etc. Now okay if um, uh, one of the very top English clubs comes along and says actually we'd rather have that player then they probably will get out-competed there but there's a significant pool of players who are at the very top of the game and they can't all play for those top five or six clubs. So the opportunity, if you get your recruitment right, 
given the budget you've got and given that you can outspend any other team in Europe pretty much other than Barca and Real, well, that makes sort of anything possible, really, if you get it right. Do you think they'll ever change the way the TV rights are done in this country so that the top six get more than the rest? But for that to happen, the other 14 would have to vote for it. Yeah. And likewise with the EFL, for them to be able to break away, first of all, the Premier League clubs would have to like the idea of having a Premier League too. And secondly, the EFL would ha- obviously would have a vote on it. So unless they just sort of some sort of UDI um, moment um, and just say, right, that's it, we're off. But then they wouldn't be in the Premier League structure or in the f- Football League structure. They'd be in a sort of, and would they then get the automatic promotion to the Premier League? So they'd have to do it as part of the Premier League. Yeah. But why would the Premier League want to advantage a bunch of clubs who aren't them? Well, Leeds United's one of the big ones and they've not been in the Premier League for 15 years. Yeah. So... It's it's an interesting debate. I don't know, what do you think? I think it's a bullshit idea. Yeah. I think they're both bullshit idea. The I European agree. Super League particularly upsets us because I think, you know, it's it's the history. It's the history of the game. You know, the fact is, is Sunderland have always played Manchester United. Whether or not Manchester United think they're quote unquote bigger than Sunderland and shouldn't be playing them is sort of irrelevant. We've always played together. Why should it change? Because you want to play Bayern Munich more often? Yeah, well, given the way United are going at the moment... Um... They might not be in the top six. Yeah, that's true. Did go through the Champions League last night, though. So, yep. credit to them. Um, hypothetically, what would the club, or what would you have done, I suppose, if it was asked to donate 250000 to Richard Scudamore? What did you make of that? Uh, it just... that There's so much that happens in, quote, the modern game, as it's known, which just makes you scratch your head and think, this, this is surely absolute rubbish. Richard Scudamore has done a very good financial and commercial job for the Premier League clubs, um, for which he was handsomely paid and bonused. Um, he'll have a fantastic pension scheme. He'll be able to walk into all sorts of non-executive directorships here, there and everywhere, earning just as much as he's been earning in the recent past. How can you say, and this is what gets me, how can you say to fans, we can't afford to reduce ticket prices, but we can afford to give massive golden goodbyes to somebody who's already made a fortune out of the game? quite reasonably made a fortune out of the game, but it's just, it's just something sort of rather unpleasant about it. I don't know if you saw last week when the Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson golf thing was announced and they were there with piles of money everywhere. And it just a bit of me felt just a bit sick. And eventually Eddie Pepperell came out and said, this is hideously unpleasant. But he was the only one who had the guts to say it. Yeah. And I hope that from now on under Stuart, Stuart's leadership and obviously with me and Juan, that actually Sunderland will have the guts to, to say that's not, that's not right, it doesn't feel nice, it feels wrong, and here are the reasons why it is wrong, um, rather than just trot along with the modern game in, it, in all its you know, vulgarity, frankly. Um, why can't we sometimes say that's not quite right? Yeah. I think we would do. I mean, imagine that five million quid, or whatever the amount was when it added up, imagine that getting spent on grassroots football, they don't want to sell a Mumbley Stadium. It would go quite a long way, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a bizarre situation where you say let, let's sell, let's sell Wembley to get together a one or two hundred million quid whatever it is for grassroots football, and then say oh let's give five million quid to somebody who doesn't isn't owed it contractually yeah and doesn't need it. <laughs> Quite it bizarre, isn't it? Sense. I don't know where the moral compass I think has gone. Five teams didn't pay, so at least five of them stuck up uh, for what most people. But the, the, the thing is, you wouldn't want it. I mean, it's, you wouldn't want it to be seen as some sort of insult to Scudamore. It's, it's not about him. It's about understanding that this is all the fans' money. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to talk now about some inner sort of club stuff. Um, I'll probably start with the music, actually. It's a nice, light-hearted way it starts. So Stuart changed the music, and I've got to say, it was um, abysmal for the Wickham game. It was terrible. He's, I'll tell you what, the way in which Stuart dealt with the fallout from that just shows what a great man he is. Yeah, he just took it on the chin, didn't he? He just took it on the chin. And and, and with humour, with good grace, and uh, uh, he... he He's a real character, isn't he? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so basically, the thing about music is, and I did try to explain this before, is um, I said earlier on that my personal taste is um, 90s indie, <clears throat> um, the Stone Roses and that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't inflict my personal taste in music on um, everybody else unless they happen to come around my house and in which case they got yeah. their option. But at the football club, that wouldn't be the point of the exercise. Um, so... Do I sit at home listening to rave music? Well, occasionally, but <laughs> <laughs> not all that often. Um, so what it's actually about is understanding uh, how to build people's um, heartbeat and how to build people's intensity to the point where by the time it gets to kickoff, everyone's up for it. And that goes for fans and players. Now, of course, in theory, players are always up for it. It's their job to be up for it, right? Yeah. But there are different levels of up for it. Um, and I felt when we came here, um, I came to the Wolves game at the end of last season, where we, Stuart and I did actually, and it was actually a very happy occasion, as you remember. But I thought the whole um, match experience was rubbish. Um, I don't think any effort was being put into how do we make this into an occasion. You know, a real sort of, um, I think, you know, the, the American sports do this really well. Really well. Um, they have to work at it because they're not naturally exciting sports. Yeah. <laughs> All the cheerleaders. That's why they have it. I know. So they have to work at it, right? Yeah. Whereas I think football can get lazy sometimes. It's really exciting. We've got really passionate fans. So why bother trying to make the whole thing more exciting and more passionate? Well, yeah. because we want Sunderland to be the most intense, the most passionate experience of any football experience in the world. That's where we want it to be. And we think we think that is absolutely achievable. So we've changed now... We had Dance of the Nights and Ready to Go, I think, are the two that most people yeah. associate with the stadium. Is there any chance that they would come back? Or are you totally trying well, to Dance the Well, no- Dance of the Nights is still in there. Yeah, it's like five before they come out. Three before. Three before. And we use Dance of the Nights now as a way to basically say implicitly to people, Get in your seats. it's time to take your seats. Yeah, it's funny that. That actually works because people it hear is, it and they associate it, is working it with a, them. It is working a bit, but I'm wondering at what point subconsciously they'll work out they're being conned. Yeah, I was say that. Stay in the beer. Say, have another beer because ah, don't worry about dancing yeah. lights thing. So, um, no, 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 we're not. I think that in these kinds of things, don't go back. Um, my view, and it's subjective, and this isn't the kind of thing I'm going to put out to votes by the Red My Army and that type of stuff because you end up with people choosing the music they like as opposed to the music which is going to achieve an effect. Yeah. Um, I think that having been associated for a significant period of time with great success, the music had carried on being played during a period of great failure. Yeah. And if you try and freshen something up, you want that freshness to be felt across every area, really, that, that you possibly can, so that people feel refreshed, quite literally, and feel like this is our this is our era. We're about to start writing some history now. Mm-hmm. It's not all going to be about what happened 20 years ago. This is about this team. This is about us as fans now. Um, we've got our memories, etc., but this is new whilst keeping the best of the traditions. And that's a constant balancing act. Yeah, you played the the Paint Your Wagon song. I don't even know what that's actually called. But... Well, you say I played it. 
somebody chose to play it. Yeah, but I, I really liked it. Like, I, I, I got upset when that wasn't played after the Charlton game because I associate that with, as you say, it's an association with memory, but we haven't won very often. I, so I when said, I hear that song, it's... I said to Chris Waters when we turned up, I said, oh, we should have a, um, um, we should have a victory song. And Chris rather sheepishly said, um, <clears throat> we do have a victory song. It just hasn't been used very often. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we do very have sheepish one. look at his do. face. He's like, I understand why you might think that we don't have one, but <laughs> we, we actually do. It's just going to have to go and blow the dust off it a bit and check that it's still working because it's on vinyl. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it, um, it hasn't been used very often, but I, I really wanted that to come back. I think most fans would agree. So um, from me to you, please play that when we win. I, I, shall, bear in mind, I shall bear in mind that plea. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> have a think about it. I might ask a few people tonight at the collective thing. Because yeah. we, we haven't settled on something to play at the end of the game, in truth. Yeah, I don't like Sweet Caroline. Stuart can go away with that. <laughs> well, the, the, the problem with having that as a, as a Vichon is that, that was Oxford started using that about seven years ago, and I don't want to be derivative on our old club. That, yeah. that's, that's, oh, that's why he wants it. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I think it is. Yeah, well, anyway. Probably is a little bit. Um, when you first came on here, you mentioned the Dortmund model. Yeah. Um, and that system's heavily geared towards like scouting, meticulous long-term planning. Yeah. But recently we had Academy Director Paul Reed on the podcast. Did you yeah. listen? Um, I think so. He was on with Borley, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he stated that our foreign youth recruitment relied mainly on favoured agents and that having a five-year plan was unrealistic. So I suppose really I it's a question of clarification of it, what you meant by the Dortmund It's, it's a question of, of where you are at a certain time, right? I mean, we're, we're not going to achieve the ultimate model that we want to get to by suddenly jumping from zero to 100 in one go, you've got to build along the way. So the first thing that Reedy has to do and is doing is to make sure that our links within the Northeast are absolutely spot on. Yeah, and he talked about that. Yeah, so it would be crazy for him to start sort of travelling off around the world, as was happening in previous regimes, actually. Travelling around the world trying to find the next big thing whilst you're losing top talent on your own doorstep. So we've got to to get the shot straight first um i don't think it was i don't think it's been terrible by the way i don't you know there are many areas of the club that i would criticize yeah the academy's done the, the academy's well. is pretty decent but just making sure that is at that scouting network in the northeast is exactly where it should be that's you've got to look after that first and then to start to move on from there but one thing i would say is that um the dortmund model doesn't mean a precise replica yeah it has to be suitable for sunderland we've looked and i've looked with Rob Mason, the club historian, at successful Sunderland teams. And it's very striking that successful Sunderland teams are absolutely, without any exception, based on Northeastern Scottish and Irish players. Yeah. Make of it what you will. But the facts are that, that they, they are absolutely indisputable facts. Um, yeah, every single time the club tries to go and attract, you know, um, what's the name of that um, Harry Enfield character? Julio Giordio, whatever. <laughs> um it, it's, it seems to go wrong. And when they tend to have more medium-term planning in terms of bringing through players who do come from somewhat a similar culture, um, climate, uh, geography, etc., those players seem to end up generally, or those teams that are based on those types of players tend to end up playing rather above their ability. And the teams that are much more cosmopolitan and eclectic seem to end up playing rather below their ability. I, I think the reasons for that are obvious. Um, and therefore, 
I think we we need, we need to focus on our knitting, focus and understand what it is that Sunderland um, is particular to Sunderland, and bring in staff, players, young players, less young players um, from the areas where we really think there's going to be a cultural fit. You mentioned in a recent interview with Roper Report that you wanted Sunderland to be more like meat and two veg rather than a quick hit of sugar. What I meant by that is that uh, I think gradually a lot of supporters up and down the country are becoming more educated about the realities of uh, what investment actually means. And historically, as fans, we were all mostly reasonably uneducated. Oh, go on, says the owner, owner, hire a bit of extra cash in. Yeah. Yeah, you, you mean old bugger, um, <laughs> etc. And then you sort of stand outside the boardroom and shout, sat the board or whatever it might be. It was if they're going to sat themselves. Um, and those that, 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 those were the, the days until the 1980s. Um, the, the way the game has moved on in a good way, I have to say, having said a few of the ways in which I think it's not been helpful. We're moving into an era where the financial rewards of being successful are much more substantial and much more sustainable. At the same time as we're moving into an era where spending is being heavily constrained and regulated and is going to be more and more regulated when you speak to football authorities both in britain but also in europe and also globally fair play is going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger thing so the old days of a new owner coming along and splashing a bit of cash and putting the club in debt and then well whoops uh, we're in admin oh sorry um those days i think are, are, are numbered um and i know that there are a couple of championship clubs who are under current risk of such substantial fines and points deductions that they probably end up just getting relegated just because just because they've outspent their um, their limits. So what we want is to sort of um, in our rebasing of Sunderland AFC, we want to make ourselves fit for purpose for this new era, and it's a new era which is going to suit Sunderland because Sunderland has such a big fan base that if it if you get it right, then it's really other clubs outside the top six. But outside the top six, it's other clubs who would have to be trying to splash some cash to keep up with Sunderland. And us being able to say, well, we actually don't need to do that because we're generating enough revenue from our massive fan base that we, we're kind of fine, actually. We can spend what we need to spend without betting the bank all the time. So the sugar hit is, oh, it's January coming up. Um, sign another striker. That'll make me feel good. And then actually what happens is a year or two later, that striker hasn't worked out, but he's on a four-year deal on massive money and then you work out that's one of the reasons why you've just been relegated because you couldn't afford to hire two or three other really good players because you've got that play you know what I mean yeah I'm thinking Danny Graham there <laughs> that was the name that popped into my head um, you said though that you wanted to make the experience of tents attending a Sunderland home match as attractive as possible uh, So, in like, is that controversial? no definitely not. <laughs> but it you- might have seemed so but um, it's, it's, it isn't it's, it's actually a statement of the bleeding obvious but you have to then do stuff off the back of it. There's a, a, a sort of maxim which I hear from some of the less smart fans, not just here, but anywhere. This is in particular Sunderland. Oh, you know, it's only what matters. All that matters is what happens on the pitch. Well, that's just dumb. That's really dumb. Because actually, yes, there are some seasons when the team does brilliantly and there are some seasons when the team does awfully. But actually, the majority of seasons, by definition of the fact that there are 24 clubs in the league and only three are going to get relegated and only three are going to get promoted... By definition, therefore, 18 clubs are going to have so-so seasons. Yeah, And I know Sunderland hasn't had all that much of that kind of season recently, a season when you just trog along. I don't think we've really ever had that. Steve Bruce, maybe that. 
around that time, just yeah, a, a season or two, a mid-table. He likes to tell that he finished 10th. So. Mid-table sort of thing. Yeah. Nothing, not really in danger of relegation, but not really in danger of, his, of, of winning silverware. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's quite a while ago, isn't it? Um, so on the basis that actually the majority of seasons, um, whilst they may have the odd excitements along the way, are fundamentally boring um, in, the, in, in an existential sense, the enjoyment of those seasons will depend on everything else being right um, and feeling that there is a point to the exercise, even though you haven't been either promoted or relegated. Mm-hmm. So the point to the exercise needs to be that coming to the match feels like a great coming together of the community, of um, multi-generations, of families, and of all different parts of the community, former players, um, local businesses, uh, the foundation, all these people coming together at the Stadium of Light um, on match days in an environment where things are really well run and where it's fun. Um, And then that gives it a lift um, gives everyone a lift because going to the same light is a fun thing to do even if we're not about to get promoted or relegated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we want to get to. And basically what had happened is that all different parts of the match day experience have been gradually deteriorating over years and years and years and years and years and years and years. Tony, when he came back, said it's just unrecognisable from where it was 20 years ago where everything was planned out to the absolute dot. That There was a reason behind everything that was being done even he as the club mascot knew exactly what his role was and what his what the point of that exercise was. So that even if things weren't necessarily going brilliantly, they were going sort of okay at one or two points, it was still a good match day experience with a good atmosphere and with everyone feeling like they're on the same page. So is that why you're so... Well, the club seems to be so in favour of trying to get safe standing in, trying to allow drinking within the stadium. Is that one of the reasons why, to improve fan experience? Of course. And what would you say to somebody who, I mean, there's people I know, and I might even be in this bracket sometimes, where I really don't care about drinking at the game sometimes, and I don't want to go on the concourse and see people throwing up their pints. I mean, yeah. what would you have? Is the idea to have that section to a yeah, certain yeah. area? Yeah, I think this is Football Supporter Federation sort of um, policy, is it's all about choice, and that you try and, rather than saying that one size fits all, that you have the opportunity for people to, as long as they're within the you know civilized bounds etc to be able to watch the game in the way and enjoy the game in the way which they would like to be enjoying it in so that's their sort of theory which lies behind all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and we'll be stu- we'll be discussing it later on today with the supporters collective i'm sure all these issues so if you look at the issue of smoking for instance do we want to go back to the situation where people are smoking in the stands next to people who don't want to be smoking no but is it the case that the 25% of the adult population does smoke and that putting them in a situation where for two and a half hours they're not allowed to smoke even though they are in an outdoor, fundamentally an out, outdoor environment, they then go into the toilets and smoke there which then does upset people who aren't smokers because they get heavy passive smoking when they go to the loo. So this is un- un- unideal for everyone. Yeah. Um, can we get to a situation where there's a, a smoking zone which at half time people can go to? S- some stadiums have tried that, it seems to work reasonably well. Likewise with drinking, perhaps you can say, well, in this stand, yes, but in the family stand, no, or whatever it might be. There are all sorts of ways in which you can frame it. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to make some rash decision and just sort of plough ahead with stuff. Whatever we do, as with the naming of the South Stand, as with the seat change, it starts out with an intention. It gets put up for consultation, um, and then it has to go into detail. And these things can take quite some time. 
And you've also, there's a, you mentioned quite a few sort of bullet points in that interview, but one of the things that sort of caught my eye was, number one, the social media content, which I think we've all noticed has changed. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that is that a directive from the club or you're just giving them the, the free will to do what they want to do. Both. So it was a directive from directly from me to Oscar and Sam to say, be how you want to be. Yeah. Um, they'd been put under a corporate constraint before where effectively they had to express themselves in a way that was consistent with blah, 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 whatever it might be, I know, whatever pompous blah, blah, you put, put behind that. And I said, well, no, because we're, we're trying to express Sunderland as, um, a, as, as the identity of the fans because that's the only point of the club. Yeah. So therefore, if we're going to have a social media, it has to represent and be, uh, and be written in the spirit of our fan base. Otherwise, there's no point to it. Yeah other than as a corporate communications tool, which is pretty an ugly way to use social media. So basically, the directive was, you guys know how to do this, crack on, do it. And they have. Yeah, they've done a really good job. It's it good. It's, it, I, it makes me laugh. Yeah. Several times a week it makes me laugh, and I'm not sure there's that, there are that many clubs, social media that does, so I think they're doing a really good job. Uh, you've also said you want to keep prices as low as possible. Now, this is an interesting one, because people will complain about prices, but the the, the issue is... is You've got contracts that have been signed, so you can't really control the catering and whatnot in the ground. Yeah, and so I think we meant ticket prices when we said that. Oh, do you mean ticket prices? Yes. Right, okay. I mean, look, ultimately, you want to find. I mean, the club isn't just a business; the club is a club, but the club needs to be run in a business-like way. So you find the happy point at which your customers feel comfortable paying a price, but you're still making as much as you can out of it. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. if we're going to run the club in the benefit of the fans. We want to encourage all the fans to spend as much of their money with the club so that we can then produce a better team, which will make everyone happier. Yeah. Um, as you say, we're bound into pouring contracts and catering contracts and all that type of stuff, so we can't control that stuff. It's the ticketing we can control. And I hope that people have seen through the League Cup and the checker trade um, and through the zoning of games that we're trying to be responsive. I mean, I, I don't. It's, it's a passing irritation, but I see that people say that we're putting up the prices for Bradford. Yeah. It's just... It's not the case. What's happened is, is that there is a baseline price, which is the Category A games, and then we discount for games that we think potentially are less attractive, and we're not discounting for Bradford. Right. So it's Boxing Day. We wouldn't discount for Boxing Day, um, and we want really want fans, particularly committed fans, to look at what we're doing in these types of areas and think, well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to maximise revenue without pushing it so far that people feel that's too, that I can't afford that. If we get to the point where basically, this goes back into this old thing of just, oh, get the chairman to hoist some cash in. It's the same thing, which is the idea that it's a rich man's plaything. The fans basically pressurise or beg the rich man to shove some cash in or give them free travel or whatever it might be without noticing that actually the money that would have been being spent should be going directly back into the thing that the fans really care about, which is the team. Um, So it's just a delicate balance. And we're very cognizant, very cognizant of the economic realities of the northeast and that's why we want to be the best value serious football club um in the country um because we think that's a potential real selling point for us um when you look at what uh differentiates us from other rivals um well one of the great ways to differentiate yourself is by being cheaper yeah um you know that's one of the easiest things to market of all and we are currently a lot cheaper, and the club hasn't actually marketed it. So that's a meeting I had yesterday in terms of our USPs, as far as I'm concerned, is we're cheap, the atmosphere is intense, and it's fun for all the family. Um, 
as in it's engaging. You'll get to know the players. We've got the highest demographic of female fans in the country. You know, we so if we express those three things: cheap, intense, engaged, that should appeal to people. I recently interviewed Bob Murray uh, a few weeks ago, and he was angry at the fact that his legacy um, had been teared down in his in his words by the ownership groups that followed him. He said that he built a proper football club. Um, do you feel like we have a quote unquote proper football club again, or are we still far off that where we need to be sort of culturally? Oh crikey! You should probably be the judge of that because we're trying, yeah, and we're aware that we're not there yet. As in, when I say we're not there. We've still got a hell of a long way to go across lots of different areas. So I certainly wouldn't be arrogant enough to say that we've come in six months later, everything's hunky-dory. It's not. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of stuff that still needs to be sorted. But our intention is is for it to be a real, proper football club Yeah. Um, in every sense of that phrase. Um, I'm a huge admirer of Bob. I mean, what he achieved with the infrastructure, I still don't think a lot of Sunderland fans have got their head around just what an achievement it was to build that level of infrastructure that cheaply. I mean, most clubs end up being 200, 300 million pounds in debt to, to build stadi- a stadium like the Stadium of Light or an academy like the Academy of Light or the Beacon or whatever it might be. We're, any debt that Sunderland had didn't come, well, very little of it came from all that. It came from f- frittering fortunes away on on players. He did an amazing job. Um, so, you know, I've got nothing but huge regard for his legacy when it comes to the infrastructure. Um, in terms of January, um, I know maybe recruitment probably isn't your area, but I thought uh, we could. Sunderland fans will be delighted to hear that that is exactly <laughs> the case. <laughs> um, but how badly affected are we by the high earners that we've still got at the football club? So this goes back into financial fair play or salary cap um, maintenance protocol, which SCMP, which is what the lower league version of financial fair play is. So. Where you're meant to end up is is that the maximum amount you spend on player salaries is 60% of your turnover. If you take our non-parachute payment turnover as being, let's say, 18 million quid a year, our wage budget on players should be 10 million quid a year. It's currently more like 15. So we're not just off, we're miles off. Mm -hmm. On a technical basis, we pass the test because the parachute payment is high enough that our technical turnover is not 18 million, it's 50 million, whatever it might be. The problem is, and the Football League saw straight through this, uh, they were form- formidably forensic in how they looked at it. They were like, yes, but your parachute payment has already been promised away. You've got a net transfer deficit of $23 million. You've got court case payments of $10 million. That's it. It's gone. So whilst on a technical basis you would pass that test, on a practical basis you you would put the club at risk if you carried on running a wage bill that once the parachute payments are finished would be very close to 100% of your entire turnover. So we need to see you start to bring yourself into line so that by the time the parachute payments finish, you're, you're sustainable, you're safe. And we need to see that direction of travel. And Stuart and I had to sign a, a letter promising that we would do that in order to be deemed fit and proper people to take over a football club, which actually I think is a very reassuring process for football fans to know that now you have to go to go through, you have to put your business plan in front of them and say, this is how it's going to be, and it has to fit into their regulations. Um, so the long and the short of it is, is that when we want to sign somebody, we still have a conversation with the Football League. Um, is this going to be okay? And they'll say, well, does it broadly fit within the direction of travel? Mm-hmm. You know. So does that affect 
you know, we talked about contracts before, and I'm not talking specifically about those contracts, but if you're trying to sign a player like Lyndon Gooch, who's came through your academy, do you have to okay with I, that with the Football League? I think the answer to that, and I had an informal conversation with the, um, the head of league at the Football League, is that what they're trying to do is ensure the club is well run and sustainable, and preventing the club from signing up their star academy graduates would not be helping the club be well run and sustainable. Mm-hmm. So they're sensible. They just want to make sure that we're not risking the club. Uh, you've got a meeting tonight with the Red and White Army. We've already discussed that, but the South Stand, that's going to be renamed. Are we going to rename the other stands? Um, or has that not been agreed? Hasn't been discussed, actually. I think, Stuart, in my view, so there's one stand which, although we all seem to be re- reasonably unaware of it, there is one stand which I think is formally called the Carling Stand or something like that. That's the North Stand. The North Stand, yeah. Yeah. So that's unnameable while we're still in that contract. Um, I haven't had a look at the contract, but Tony says no time soon. Um, and I think he, that's always been called the Carl and North yeah, stand. Yeah, I forgot about that. And no one calls it that at all. Um, and then you've got the the main stand and the, the one opposite, east and west. Um, and I think Stuart and I will have a look at what to do with the names of it. I don't like having east, south, west, north, right? I think yeah. that, that's vanilla and, and boring and lacking in character. In fact, funny enough, I think... On a personal base, I'll discuss it with the Red and White Army and, and all the other fans groups, but the, the outside of the stadium itself, if you move away from the entrance, the main entrance, is oddly um, oddly unsunderland. There's very little signage on it to indicate this is actually Sunderland Stadium. Yeah. It's quite bland. Um, so I think we would like to see uh, gradually bringing in more and more uh, sort of elements that give the stadium some identity in line with Sunderland's history. So you've got the South Stand being named, and then you've got the murals being painted. Let's see how they go. Let's see what fans think. We could extend the mural painting around the concourses. Mm-hmm. Um, we can see what people think about that stand being named and whether they really pick up that name and use it. You know, we don't have to do everything at once. Yeah, it's a long process. I like to think positively. So That's are great. the club preparing for life in the championship? Well, I think you'd be business irresponsible not to. So you're preparing for both? You've got to have two business plans and two recruitment plans. Mm-hmm. And we do. It's good. Reassuring. Um, there is a consistent drive by you and the club to get attendances higher. Yeah. Um, are you happy with our current attendances? No. Um, are they amazing? Yes. Are Sunderland fans the most loyal bunch in the world? Yes. Um, do I have great scepticism that almost any other club would get these attendances in the third tier? Great scepticism. I don't think they would. I honestly think if Man United suffered a double relegation, I think I, I, I think they'd struggle. Um, mm-hmm. Most clubs, the, even the very, very biggest clubs, are going to struggle to get 32,000 through the gate for Rochdale at home in the third tier after two relegations. Yeah. So, hugely impressed. Unbelievably grateful. Happy? No, because I want to always drive forward. And the moment you sit back and say, I'm happy with that, then you cease being inventive and creative and dynamic about what we're trying to do about it. Um, I said earlier on that I want us to be the cheapest club, big club around. But the the point of that is to have the biggest crowd. Yeah, <laughs> It's not to be a medium-sized club that charges really low prices, and that's what Bradford City do, and their revenues aren't very great as a result. So we do want to get great revenues um, because that's what pays for better players and, and, and all this and make makes the club sustainable. So 
we want to drive that attendance relentlessly upwards. But it's not just going to happen because the team's playing well. And I think that's being proven right now. Our crowds right now are not going up, even though they're on an amazing winning run, really, when you think about it, or unbeaten run, and they're playing exciting football. But that in itself is not going to drive the crowds to where I want it to be. So if you think of the home crowd at the moment as being about 30,000 in the championship, the little bits and bobs of research I've seen, I think naturally in the championship it would rise 33,000, 34,000 home crowd. You get bigger away crowds. So probably the average in the championship, if we just didn't do much, would probably be 35, 36. If we were running the club well, and if the team was competitive, we'd get, get 35, 36. And maybe after a couple of seasons in the championship, if you weren't doing anything, it maybe starts to drop off a little bit again yeah. as people think, oh, well, this isn't that exciting. Why aren't we in the Premier League? So we've got to think beyond that and think, how are we going to, on a reliable basis, have a, a home audience of 45,000? So that if we're in the championship, without giving away any freebies, um, we are able to pack that stadium every single week. There is a an elephant in the room. Parasite-sized elephant. Parasite-sized elephant. Yeah, that would be scary. How how about an elephant-sized parasite? Okay, yeah, that'll do. Um, But you caused a a stir, I would say. I think, you know, Rookwood were critical, and I was critical as well. I thought the comment was... I understood it. Um, I think think it was the word, wasn't it, really? Yeah. Which was was ill-chosen and and also misapplied. Um, My real vitriol is for the local businesses who take a hike off our back. That's what the parasite comment was really meant to be about. Um, so, yes, going back, would I use that word again? No. Yeah. Right? So I, I think that's justified criticism. And I think it is absolutely right, by the way, that when we do get something wrong, that people do just say, that's 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 not right. And I thought the way in which Rogue Report did it very respectfully said, that's not quite right. Just, you don't, that's a, two, that's a two-footed yeah. challenge when what you need is a straightforward, you know, proper tackle. Yeah. Um, is it a big issue? No. Not really. Does it cost the club a fortune? No. Is it indicative of a general culture by which lots of people think that Sunderland is a bit of a joke, soft touch, free ride, doesn't really matter, rich people own it, fuck them? Um, yeah, I think it is. Um, I think there are several things that have crept in because of the general attitude, because of the general atmosphere of disrespect between the club's owners, administration, and, and administrators, and the club's fans. There are a bunch of practices that have crept in which seem to be sort of deemed to be somewhat acceptable that I think most really great fans, which is what most Sunderland fans are, know in their heart of hearts aren't aren't ideal. So is that when you talk about improving fan engagement and ticket prices, that's what that's aimed at, isn't it? It's aimed at that fan group who choose to watch the game at the pub. You know, that's who you're trying to there get There aren't in. many of them, I don't think. Several hundred, maybe. Yeah, it's not it's a thousand at most. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't I, I don't hold any great sort of aspiration that, that, that this is the golden key that unlocks our future attendance growth. I really don't. It's a much more cultural point in terms of I don't want anyone to take the piss out of this club because ultimately when they do, they're taking the piss out of the people who do go. Um, and really, they're claiming to be Sunderland fans when fan is short for fanatic. And I think if you're a Sunderland fanatic you would want to contribute to the club going forward. Um, and, yeah, I'd, would I use the word parasite to describe the people who do watch the streams and the pubs again? No. The second bit of what I said was, do I think that they are real supporters? Not really. Support means either shouting or a bit of financial support. Mm-hmm. And just going to the pub and saying, no, nah, that's my that's my team. Yeah. It's, uh, you forgive it if the stadium's full. 
if the stadium's filled, we'll, we'll we'll build the stadium bigger. Yeah, but that, that's the only way you can sort of just because I mean, if if Sunderland are playing away from home and I can't get a ticket, oh sure, uh, as sure. what happened with Agrit and Stanley and, 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 and stuff, you know, where they're doing the and, and that's why that's why we're going to start doing beanbags yeah. is to make sure that people who are real fans and who want to watch their team can at every opportunity. Right, we're in the, the home straight. I promise. Uh, I, I reckon we'll be done in fifteen minutes. Um, <laughs> You said in your interview on the Rogue Report website that you want to target traditional uh, red and white areas that had turned to the dark side. How do you go did about... I, did I use the phrase dark side? No, that's me. All right. That's my, uh, <laughs> that's my Star Wars... Uh, black and white. Yeah. The turn to the, the black and white, which black, dark colour, so I'll have that. How do you go about doing that? And do you think maybe... I mean, you know, you mentioned Gateshead. I would always think of Gateshead as being a naturally black and white. But I think you're quite young aren't you i am i am young so when i speak to, so this is all based on research um and meetings with rob mason the club historian um and with there are probably three or four other what i would call senior fans who i consult on pretty much anything to make sure that i'm not way off course mm-hmm. so the point about gateshead was originally raised with me by rob and he went back through the you know back through the history to show me that this was originally a sunland town mm-hmm. um some time ago, and it had probably already been on the drift a bit by the time that John Hall and his Geordie Nation came along and really tried to put a black circle, which included Gateshead. Um, it's a medium-term challenge. Gateshead is a town of 150,000 people. There are 150,000 population um, cities that support championship clubs. It's a, bit, it's a big town. Yeah. Um, so it's just one example of a place where there will be people there who want to come and watch good value, intense family atmosphere engaged football um they won't all be passionate black and whites um and we want to compete for those people and for the next generation and say there's not a real alternative and it, and we're different it's so a long-term aim isn't it's, it? it's a medium-term aim but you've got to start it, yeah. you, you don't achieve medium-term aims by thinking well we'll address that in the medium term you achieve medium-term aims by starting now and then moving from there and i think you know some uh, no instigation of mine but some supporters um of their own initiative, go off, off their off their butts and form the new Newcastle branch that's already up to a hundred members in the space of two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. So it'd be counterintuitive to say that we're going to target people in Newcastle, but we're not bothering Gateshead. Yeah, it's a bit strange thing to do. I think the answer is is that in a cheerful, slightly cheeky way, we can just say to people all over the northeast, "There's this really big, fun, happy club that you know." Is good value, and if, you, if that's what you, if that's what lights your fire, then come and give us a go. Are we closer announcing another concept? Oh, I don't know. Actually, I have to ask. I have to ask Tony about that. Yeah, I know there was going to be two, wasn't there? I think I said at some point that we were hoping there were going to be two. Right, but I have not checked in with him on where his other discussions have got to. Uh, we mentioned There's a lot of focus at the moment on the Spice Girls, and it's partially because it's it's happening. It's an event. Spice in your life. Um, but it's also because we want some proof of concept to, to, to take to the big concert promoters and say, you can come to us and pack out a massive stadium and, and everything's done, you know, it's mega. Mm-hmm. Um, because having not done it for a few years, I think the club needs to regain its foothold in, in you know, when the, when the big promoters are getting together with their acts, they're saying, look, here are the places we go because it always works there. And we mentioned beanbacks before. Yeah. Um, it, how, how did you manage to organise that? Because I think it was actually a suggestion from Accrington to give credit where credit is due. Um, so does that mean you have to share the revenues with Accrington? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because it has to come with their permission. 
right or is that, they're the ones who are effectively the rights holder for that Saturday afternoon game which as we all know exists in a in a TV blackout effectively within mm-hmm. the UK so it's for them to say actually we're going to waive our blackout because we think that more people can watch it um, than, than would otherwise be the case um, and when they came I think I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure they came to us with the idea and that we then said okay that that's great and that then opened our eyes to future discussions with other clubs along the yeah. similar lines when we got a limited allocation and oh sound system lots of people whinging about the sound yeah, system it's not good uh, I presume that'll have to be fixed for the concerts well they they bring their own system it? but I think the, the thing which is slightly exercising Stuart and me at the moment is that A it's it's not if we're trying to create a great match day experience that's not ideal secondly probably it's not ideal in terms of safety announcements as well I don't want to be sort of prissy about this and not some sort of health and safety Nazi but it's it's something which is absolutely on our agenda we had um, somebody in to make some um, improvements and there have been there has been a bit of an improvement but it's not where it needs to be and, we, and Stuart and I are aware of that and uh, Stuart Donald has said on the podcast before that he isn't sure if he has the resources to, to look after the club once it gets to the Premier League um, is this a conversation you have regularly and is that not why Juan Satori was brought into the football club um, I think that the real challenge on resources is in getting promoted from the championship to the Premier League once you're in the Premier League these days the revenues are so high yeah. that a club that has on top of that the size of fan base that Sunderland has is run even run even semi-decently will be in a really good place and most Premier League clubs these days are profitable um, so I, I don't think that the Premier League is necessarily the issue um, it's the that bit where you're competing against some other big clubs, Leeds, Derby, Sheffield, etc. So is that potentially next season? Well, I said we're planning for the Championship, aren't we? Because we'd be irresponsible not to. Yeah. We're also planning for League One because we'd be irresponsible not to do that. But we are planning for the Championship. It, what we're hoping um, is is that we're clearing up the financial issues. And in the meantime, while we're doing that, the club is running at a significant loss, which Juan and Stuart are funding. We're hoping that by next summer a majority of those issues have been cleared up and that we get to the point where the club is not losing very much, at which point the final parachute payment, which is much smaller, um, will go partially to bridge that loss, but also there will be extra budget then left over from that parachute payment um, if we've got things properly sorted out. If we've got the losses down to 4 million quid, 5 million quid, then the final parachute payment will still be reasonably significant over and above bridging that four or five million quid loss if unfortunately we don't manage to get the losses down below 10 million quid then the majority of it will be majority of the parachute payment will be eaten up by it so we are on a what i call an egg timer to get everything sorted by next may ellis is finally paid out by us at that point the majority of the court cases are we think pretty much finished done by that point the transfer overhang there are a few remaining ones next july August but that's then pretty much it so hopefully we then enter next season rebased and in a position to then everything that then everything good that then happens goes on to um on to budget as opposed to into filling black holes does that make sense yeah I think so so you're looking at the start of not the season coming up after this one the one after that we're at sort of zero or no, this summer no it's this summer this summer we're looking at or next summer yeah, yeah summer, confused. summer 2019 there we are Pull the we, year we want to get to a fully rebased Sunderland but it is a hell of a challenge. 
uh, talked a little about Juan. Uh, he's going to for a presidential campaign. Uh, what, what have you made of that? And has that affected his? Well, I think he's absolutely barking mad. Um, in, in the nicest possible way, because he's a really close friend of mine. Um, Juan is the type of guy, he's got such energy and such intelligence and such capability that I think he almost gets bored quite easily and needs to move on to the next challenge. And one of those challenges is helping us create a, a, a top 10 Premier League club, right? He regards that as being a sort of real 21st century, that's a proper challenge like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't just do that. So why not try and become leader of country as well? At the same time and you're like well why not just do the football first and then have a look at the politics second because yeah. i know enough about politics i worked in politics there are so many boring meetings with people who you have to meet but you wouldn't want to meet and juan is not not somebody who deals easily with boring three-hour meetings but he'll have a lot of them if he becomes president of uruguay um so each to their own and he's a guy of extraordinary achievement and capability but Stuart and i would probably rather sleep every night on burning hot coals than do what he's doing yeah fair enough um, and also Monaco there was a situation there how much well, I presume he doesn't have any involvement in it but I mean how aware well his wife owns it yeah so so he's uh, not personally involved but he is pretty I, involved I think he is I think he, when your other half owns yeah uh, you know my, I know that my partner's involved at Sunderland I mean she's you know is yeah it's I, I don't think he's involved in a technical way as he doesn't have an official title or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, but it's a very small family, his wife and her father. Um, and Juan is the son-in-law who's extremely business savvy and knows a lot about football. So I think he absolutely has been involved at the moment because of Sunderland and because of the political situation. I'm guessing that he's, he may be less involved than he has been in the past or less engaged maybe than he has been in the past. But I don't really know what's going on there, to be honest with you. Okay, before we sign off, we've went an hour 32. So I reckon well, we'll get in before an hour 35. Last question. That's how long it took me to do my last half marathon. <laughs> yeah. uh, if the current version of you could go back and speak t- to the May 2018 version of you and offer one bit of advice, what would it be? Always buy enough Alka-Seltzer. That would be it. <laughs> it's been absolutely mental. <laughs> no, it's been... it's been. It, I don't know. Um, maybe... I think might benefit from maybe renting a place up here. You can still do that now. I know. And, and Stuart and I were talking about on the way up um, earlier this week that it's an awful lot of time in hotels. Um, nice hotel, Roger Hotel. Really nice. But I think maybe it'd be a little, we'd be able to have more downtime up here if if you were able to have your own, your own bolt hole. Yeah, your own stuff. There's nothing worse than going to a hotel. It's, it's never yours. Um, no. Well, in Ellis's case, the Hilton is his, actually. But um, yeah. in our case, we don't own a hotel, no. No. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Charlie, and giving Thanks, me a, such a huge amount of your time. Hopefully, next time we speak, it'll be after another brilliant 4-2 win over somebody else. Um, oh, can we just do a nice, boring 2-0 win? No, I quite enjoyed the 4-2. Oh. I was trying to think if I'd ever seen a 4-2 at the Stade Malite. And the game that came to my head was Wigan, I think in like 2011. So it's been a long time since I saw 4-2. Okay, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, Cheers, Connor. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.